Welcome to Truth Matters Church, contending for the faith one verse at a time. In part two of our study of Jesus' letter to the church in Smyrna, found in Revelation chapter 2, we look carefully at the tribulation that that church suffered and would further suffer, as well as demonic activity that impacted believers both then and now. If you missed part one of this message, be sure to listen to that for the full context of today's study. Here is Pastor Alex Cataroja. Ready to look at verse 9? He says there, he goes, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Tribulation is the familiar word, clipsis, and we've covered this extensively in our study in the tribulation. Clipsis, it means persecution or affliction, anguish or distress or trouble. When Jesus says, I know your tribulation, he goes, I know your persecution. I know your affliction. I know your anguish. I know your distress. I know your trouble. We just talked a little bit about the narrow persecution, right? That they're getting arrested. They're putting dead animal skins on them. They're throwing them to dogs to be ripped to pieces. And some of them are even being crucified. And some of them are being lit on fire to light the city. He says, look, I know your tribulation. I know what you're going through. I know firsthand. Another characteristic of this tribulation if you were to you know, do a word study on Thlipsis, it also has the idea to be crushed, to be pressed, you compressed or squeezed pretty much without any way out. Imagine just being, <laughs> oh man, I, I hate to use this. It's probably the, you know, a good kind of idea of, of this Thlipsis, of what the believers in Smyrna were feeling. September 11. Imagine you were in the building and you're in the rubble. You're being pressed. You're being squeezed. There's no way out. That's tribulation. That's thlipsis. And for those, you know, sadly, many lost lives. And thank, you know, thankfully for some of our first responders, some were able to be rescued and are able to tell their story. But when you're in that moment, you think, you think people that are in despair, you would hope that they would cry out to their God and their Creator. And... Jesus is saying, I know full well. That's how it felt like for these believers in Smyrna. And Jesus says, I know. I oida. I am well aware. Jesus, there's, not, there's not anything that ex- escapes Jesus' notice for his followers. I do want to give us some brownie points here. When he says, I know your tribulation, and we've covered this in, our, in the tribulation study. When he says, I know your tribulation, where would this fall under? Remember, there was two types of church tribulation, we looked at all of Scripture and we found that, okay, tribulation is a big word, but there are different groups that experience different types of tribulation for different reasons. They were, the church goes through a tribulation for being faithful. There is also a church going through tribulation because they're unfaithful. There is also Jerusalem's tribulation that's specific to Jerusalem and the people of Israel. And then lastly, there is this global tribulation that a lot of us in the book of, when we think of book of Revelation and we think about the, the seals, the, the bowls, and the wrath judgments, the trumpet judgments, we, we think that that's the, that's the great tribulation. So, but that's really what, we're, what we categorize that. Well, that's the global tribulation. When Jesus says, I know your tribulation, where does that fall here? 
of these four? Faithful. Faithful. Remember, they're the only good church. See, that's why I like kind of doing that legwork. I know your tribulation. They're going through a church tribulation for being faithful. So he says, I know that. So can you say, can, you know, is this church going through a great tribulation? Although it doesn't call that. Oh, absolutely. If you're getting burned at the stake and all the stuff that we talked about, crucified and, and being you know, thrown to animals to be shred to pieces, that's a pretty great tribulation. But that's for being faithful. If we're going to go through tribulation for being faithful, then we can relate to the believers in Smyrna. He goes on to say, he goes, and your poverty, but you are rich. So he's saying, I know full well, I'm well aware of the persecution and the tribulation you're going through for bearing my name. And he goes, and I also know your poverty, but you're rich. Let's look at that. Poverty is toicha. I am not even know if I'm saying that right. Toicha. But poverty in its Greek word, it means beggar. It means you're destitute, you're poor, and you're helpless. Okay, now I'm not talking about we can't pay for gas. You're not in poverty here. This is not the Greek word for you. I mean, you're in an unfortunate situation and circumstance, but you're not in poverty. Poverty means, well, are you begging? Are you destitute? Are you poor? You can even say homeless and helpless. Okay, then this Greek word would be appropriate for you. So these believers, Jesus says, and I know your poverty too. They're beggars. They're destitute. They're poor. And they're helpless. So because of severe Christian persecution, remember, Nero gave the order, get the Christians. They're to blame for the fire. They're to blame for hating humanity. Get them so that we can convict them and torture them for showing, you know, for, and, and, you know, bringing justice on them. So what happened? They were scattered. They were in hiding. They were living as aliens. That's why when Peter says to the believers, scattered, living as aliens. They were living, here's a word we might know, when you say, you live off the grid? Some people live off the grid, right? No, pretty much no connections with like technology. They're just kind of living off the grid, somewhere off somewhere that's just kind of providing for themselves maybe. Well, these believers are kind of like that. Because of the Christian persecution, because it's illegal to be a Christian, then they were cut off from social gatherings, where, you know, the town square where all the, the activities were going on, the markets, they can't just openly go there. They're unable to buy and sell, etc. Because they're on the run, whatever properties or possessions they had, they don't have anymore. They're running for their life. It's because of their faith. They were poor and impoverished from a social and economic standpoint. It's Jesus saying, I'm well aware and acquainted with your tribulation and poverty. But Jesus, interestingly, in the same breaths, but he says, but you are rich. Like, what? (laughs) You're getting persecuted and tortured, or many of us are. We have nothing. If we get caught and convicted, we're just made a sport, and yet you're telling me, Lord, I'm rich? He says, you are. Present tense. Not you will be. He goes, you are. I'm telling you, Christianity is, 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 isn't it? Not of this world. Because in our humanity, it's like, I don't want to be a Christian under those terms. But the reward is true riches, is salvation. 
When he says you are, and it's in the present tense, you know what comes to mind? Matthew 6. We'll pick it up in verse 19. And this is concerning true treasure. He goes, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So despite, so these believers in Smyrna, under intense persecution, or that's, you know, their Christianity is basically outlawed, and their social and economic status is really, they're in poverty, they're, they're poor, they have no possessions, and all this is just for being a Christian. In Jesus' eyes, which is the truth that really matters, he goes, I know from the world standpoint, you look pathetic. You look like a loser. You look like a moron from the world standpoint. But who who cares what someone might think of you? What really matters is what the Lord Jesus Christ thinks about you. And he's saying, you know what? Even on this side of heaven, you're in poverty. But the truth is, you are rich. Because your true treasure is not on earth. Your true treasure is in heaven with Jesus and the Father as the prize. So this truth Okay, it was written to the believers in Smyrna, but this truth transcends the believers in Smyrna and applies to all believers of all time. It doesn't matter what you amass or what you do not amass on this side of heaven, but what truly matters is our true riches and our true treasures which are in heaven. Oh, I can't wait till we get to the New Jerusalem. You know, you know I'm, I'm, just gonna kinda, I'm just gonna kind of give you a little sneak peek at the end here, okay? And I was driving, and I realized, you know, when I think about, man, you know, civilization has been here for at least 6,000 years, right? You can, you can argue. At least when you use the scriptures, it's around 6,000 years, around there. When you look around, anything, whether it's the roads that are paved, or the fences that are put up, or the buildings that are constructed, like everything, right? The Everything, from the sewage, everything. Man did that, right? Man paved the road. And what do we pave the road with? Well, as- asphalt, you know? I'm not in construction, so. But I was reflecting, and I was like, wait. The New Jerusalem's roads will be paved in gold. Clear as glass. And I started to think about, okay, well, you know, I think about our roads here, but I know, man, we did that, and you know, we're driving on it and walking on it and all that stuff on it. Could you imagine God paving the road in pure beauty and perfection? And in, it, it describes it in very, you know, um, it uses a lot of precious metals, jewels, and we're going to be walking on that. We're truly rich. Here, if you might get an ounce of gold, you might be like, oh, wow, Right? What's gold going for now with inflation? I haven't checked. It's probably, gold is probably, you know, withstanding this inflation right now, I would, I would imagine. But imagine you, well, it's, on, it's on the floor. <laughs> you might not have gold here. We're going to be walking on it, among other things. I'm just saying the new Jerusalem, when it's described, when we get there, that's my favorite part in all of the scripture. That's what we have to look forward to. And Jesus is saying, you are rich. You know, the, you know, this earth's not that great, you know? I mean, yeah, it's nice. It's habitable. I mean, we can make some pretty cool things. But we did that. We built this. Let God build the new Jerusalem. 
and its walls and its streets and its river and its trees. Let God do it. Wow. You will know this when he says you are rich. That's when it comes to fruition when we're there. First of all, when we were Jesus, of course, that's riches in and of itself. But when we experience the new heavens and a new earth and the new Jerusalem, this will really ring true. But that's a present reality for believers. It's not something, you know, yeah, that's part of the riches. He's saying you have, you, you're rich now and it'll manifest itself. It's kind of like, um, as believers, we have eternal life now. We still die. But you have eternal life now. You believe in Christ. It'll manifest itself when we are glorified. It's done. It's a reality. Now let's look at the latter part of verse 9. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So Jesus is interesting here. He's, he's talking about something specific here. He's saying, I know, I know your, your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I also know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What blasphemy is Jesus talking about? He goes, he also knows and is well aware of the blasphemy. Here's a hint. We're going to look at it in its historical context and scripture. So we're going to see, okay, Jesus is writing this to the believers in Smyrna. What would the blasphemy be from an historical standpoint and in scripture? Because what is it? It's good to note, and this is from an historical standpoint, Roman emperors, Caesar, Remember, Rome is the world power at this time when this letter was written to the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. The Roman emperor, Caesar, was considered a god among gods. Here's here's what's interesting. You know Caesar, Rome? Remember I mentioned there's all these altars erected, some to poets, some to Greek gods. There was even, you know, some other erections of even themselves, Caesar was okay with that. Hey, you can have all these gods, but Caesar is the God among gods. All must hail Caesar. And Caesar, interestingly enough, it had many many titles. And one of them was Lord. Lord Caesar. Lord. Caesar was also called Savior, Master, Son of Man, God. So the blasphemy in its historical context under, in this case, narrow persecution, and there's persecution that follows, Domitian, it's hailing Caesar as a god. So the blasphemy is, in its historical context, is hailing Caesar, the Roman emperor, as a god. But the subjects in view are those who say they are Jews, which means the Jews are hailing Caesar as a god. Did you get that? The blasphemy in its historical context. So Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty, but you're rich. And he goes, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In its historical context, and to the readers and the recipients of this letter, the blasphemy is hailing Caesar as a god. But in this case, it was the Jews who say they're people who are saying they are Jews but are, and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. There are certain Jews who are hailing Caesar as a god. Follow me? 
You're like, wait, Alex, that seems kind of a stretch. Can this be supported by Scripture? Of course. Or I wouldn't be saying it. In John 19, and this was Jesus before Pilate, and Pilate, after examining Jesus, wanted to release him. Let's pick it up in verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, to release Jesus. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Implying they are friends with Caesar. Did you get that? The Jews are claiming to be friends with Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And he's our friend. We're good with Caesar. Them calling themselves a friend of Caesar is another way to say that they are loyal to Caesar because there's, a king, there's someone who's claimed to be a king and that's a threat to Caesar's throne. And this is quite opposite of the mandate in the New Testament in John's epistle not to love the world or the things in the world. So it is along these lines that I submit before you that this was the blasphemy of the Jews. When Caesar demanded worship, Certain Jews, to save their skin, they obliged and blasphemed. You're like, wait, wait a minute. Weren't the Jews pretty zealous? And weren't there some historical situations where even under the rule of Pilate, where there was an uproar in Jerusalem because of the idols and the images and the icons? Yeah. But you know what? Remember, Jerusalem was devastated in 70 AD under Titus. And if you read the history on that, it can be kind of the equivalent of the persecution that the Christians experienced. Pretty brutal. Ravaged. So here's what I'm saying. Is the Jews might not have hailed Caesar as a friend openly, but you know what? When they were destroyed in 70 AD and ravaged by the Romans, and now the Romans come and Caesar's here and says, Hail Caesar. What do you think? Do you think the Jews learning from what happened to them. Hail Caesar. What I'm saying is it's reasonable to deduce that this changed their view of Caesar and they were amendable to blaspheme now after the destruction of Jerusalem because it was a pretty devastating destruction. Now let's look at synagogue of Satan. So synagogue is the same word used to describe the Jews meeting in synagogues. So just like New Testament Christians, we meet in churches, ecclesia, well, The Jews in the Old Testament, when they would observe the Sabbath, they would go to the synagogue. That's the same word used here. Is their place of worship for the Jews. So in context, there was great animosity between Christians and Jews or Judaizers. So, if you were to just kind of follow history. So the Judaizers hated Christianity. They thought Christianity was a false religion. In fact, they tried to add works to faith. That's why they're called Judaizers, because they are zealous for circumcision or the law. But now that Christianity is illegal, the Jews didn't like them anyways. There's animosity. The Jews are on the side of Caesar, because they, they have the same enemy. Does it make sense? So, When Roman persecution broke out against Christianity, the Jews had no problem pledging allegiance to Rome, just like they did under Pilate when Jesus was brought before him, and to seek out Christians. 
And if you think about it, remember the Apostle Paul, before his conversion, he was after Christians, wasn't he? And he had the authorities from the chief priests and the elders. And he went looking for Christians to put them in jail so that if they're convicted, they can be tortured and killed. It can be said that these Jews are described as an assembly brought together for Satan against the cause or name of Jesus. Which leads us to a truth. Anyone who professes to be a Jew but denounces Christianity are part of Satan's synagogue back then, throughout history, now, and into the future. I told you we're going to go along. We have two more verses because we're going to finish Smyrna. Is some of this hopefully kind of making sense a little bit? So the blasphemy is pledging allegiance to Caesar in, con- in its historical context. And this synagogue of Satan, so Satan's community or assembly of his people, one trait of that is they denounce Christianity and will even hail an evil ruler for that cause. So let's look at verse 10. Jesus goes on to say, remember he's writing, we're trying our best that we can Imagine this letter. You're, you're, there is this intense persecution. You're in hiding. You're impoverished. And you're getting this letter from the Apostle John that was written to the letter, to the angel, to them. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 10, he goes, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Okay. You're a believer in Smyrna. You're in tribulation. You're in poverty. You're in hiding and your fellow Christians are being tortured. And he goes on to say, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation. Aren't we already? <laughs> he said, I know you have, you're in tribulation. And you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He says in verse 10, what, are you, what you are about to suffer, he's prophesying here. What you are about to suffer, future tense. <laughs> when they get that letter, something's, happen, something's about to happen. And this will be sometime after 95 or 96 AD because that's where when we did our introduction, that's around the time when the book of Revelation was written around 95 or 96. So what you're about to suffer is going to happen after 95 or 96 AD. That's what we can know so far. But he goes, do not fear about what you are about to suffer. Who's you? Very good. How do we know that? Our rules of engagement, number three. Thou shall not take Scripture out of context. This was written to the angel, to the church, over the church in Smyrna. So you, more applicably here, are the believers in Smyrna. Suffer is pasco. And it means to endure suffering. And its root word, it means mourning. So he's saying, do not fear for what you're about to suffer. And it's, it's really like this mourning that's in store for you. He's exhorting his faithful followers not to fear of their upcoming suffering and mourning and to patiently endure it for his namesake. Jesus is telling them they're about to suffer. But he says, Patiently endure it. 
for his namesake. How is this going to happen? He says, behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. Okay, let's look at that. We all know who the devil is, right? Hopefully. We have some idea of who he is. Actually, devil is diabolos, and it means accuser. So devil means accuser. When you say the devil, it's speaking about a characteristic of this fallen chief being, and that being accuser or slanderous. And as we know, the devil is one of many of Satan's names. And Satan itself means adversary. We all know what adversary is? Enemy. And in this case, the enemy of God and the enemy of mankind is our adversary, Satan, who is also the devil. And Satan has a lot of other names or nicknames. He's also called the tempter, the prince of the power of the air, the deceiver, the father of lies. He's a murderer, the ruler of demons, Beelzebub, star of the morning, son of dawn, anointed cherub, the evil one, enemy of our souls, the ruler of this world, the god of this age, the angel of light, Belial, roaring lion, dragon, and old serpent, just to name a few. My question is this. Don't, don't turn the page just yet. He says the devil is about to cast some of you Smyrnians into prison. Who's the devil going to use to throw them into prison? Amen. Leaders. Evil world leaders. At the time of the first century, Roman emperors. Did you get that? Just like Satan entered Judas. we got to get this. Satan entered Roman emperors, including Nero and then Domitian. Here's a spoiler. Satan's going to enter Antichrist, an evil world leader, who is going to be the leader of leaders. So when Jesus warns them that the devil is about to cast some of them into prison, Satan through Roman emperors issued an order to arrest Christians for their faith, attributing Christianity to a religion that promotes hate and even cannibalism. So the Romans and the emperors, they're hearing, oh, this Christians, they also do this communion. They eat the Lord's or Jesus' body and blood Not only do they hate humanity, they're cannibals. Those, there are Roman emperors who outlawed Christianity and consequently issued an order to have them arrested and thrown into prison. In fact, Domitian, not Nero now, we're talking about Domitian after, he made a law, and this is what that law stated, that no Christian once brought before the tribunal should be exempted from punishment without renouncing their religion. Did you get that? So Domitian, when he was the Roman emperor, not only, you know, now is Christianity illegal and cannibalism and hate. He's saying, if you're brought before his tribunal, you need to reject Christianity. He made that a law. And that's the quote right there of the law. That no Christian once brought before the tribunal should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion. In other words, if you do not deny Christ, you will be punishment by the full extent of the law. They were, in other words, they were asked to renounce their faith or else be punished 
tortured death. Man, history and tradition tells us even more about the graphic details of what the early Christians had to go through. They were lacerated with scourges, you know, just like Jesus was scourged at his crucifixion. Flesh opened up. Some of the tortures that some of these early Christians experienced was They were lacerated with scourges even to the innermost veins and arteries so that the hidden inward parts of the body, both of their bowels and their members, were exposed. It's like you're on an operating table through torture. And then laid upon seashells and certain pointed spits and subjected to every species of punishment of torture and finally thrown as food to the wild beasts. Sounds pretty demonic, doesn't it? As mentioned, history tells us that both Peter and Paul were put to death, and this was under Nero. And history also tells us, did you know that the Apostle John was thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil? Did you hear this? So for this, how many of us have heard of Tertullian? Tertullian. He's an early Christian apologist. He was an early Christian theologian. He had writings. Here is an excerpt, and he mentions all three. He mentions Paul, Peter, and John. Let me read that to you. Just so you know, when I say, you know, history and tradition tells us that Paul was beheaded, that Peter was crucified, and that now here, you know, John was thrown into a boil, you know, um, a cauldron of boiling oil. Tertullian captures this in this one paragraph. Let me read that excerpt. And this is from the Prescription Against Heretics, chapter 36. Since, moreover, you are closely upon Italy, you have Rome, from which there comes even into our own hands the very authority of the apostles themselves. How happy is its church, of which apostles poured forth all their doctrine along with their blood, where Peter endures a passion like his Lord's. Here's the, if you want to know, where in history does it tell us that Peter was crucified, Tertullian writes it here, where Peter endures a passion like his Lord's, talking about the crucifixion. Where Paul wins his crown. Remember when Paul says, there is now before me a crown? He's about to go to his death. Here is the manner of death. Wins his crown in a death like John the Baptist. Tertullian said, Paul had the same death as John the Baptist. What happened to John the Baptist? Paul's head was cut off. Tertullian writes for us. And where the Apostle John, here's, here's the, was first plunged unhurt into boiling oil and then remitted to his island exile. So before John was banished to Patmos, where he's now writing this letter that we're studying, Right before that, he was thrown into a boiling, I just think about like, you know, like a, a black cauldron, like, uh, you know, like the witches or whatever. And then he put some boiling oil and it threw John in there. And then John didn't get hurt. They're like, away with this man, bring him to Patmos. So John, under Domitian, he was thrown into boiling oil. Apparently he survived. And then he was banished by Domitian to Patmos. Here's this, what I'm saying all this. It sure sounds like these evil rulers were devil-possessed to me, doesn't it? That type of cruelty and brutality for bearing the name of Jesus and a follower of Christ. 
you're going to go to this extent with all of these false allegations concerning true, authentic, biblical Christianity? Jesus' words certainly ring true. A slave is not greater than his master. Did he not see that? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And he's more specifically, the apostles and those who believe their message. Jesus also warned his disciples and now apostles, hey, see the manner in which I'm dying? And I, I, I bled, suffered, died, and was tortured. They did that to me. They're going to do it to you. And they're also going to do it to those who believe your message. And that would include, obviously, the believers in Smyrna. And he goes on to say, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. I'm going to do a little conjecture here. This is a little, you know, when I, when I get into the word, you know, a lot of things are going on. Like, wow, here's a conjecture. What I mean is, you can take this for what it is, but I, these are just some of the things that kind of run through my mind as I'm going through this study. I believe that the, I put angles here. I believe that the angels, remember there was a, the scripture tells us that there was a, a rebellion in heaven in the angelics, uh, in the angels, and that Satan and a third of the angels followed him. This is what, I'm just saying, this is conjecture. Why would these other angels follow Satan and not stay loyal to God, their creator? Here's what I think Satan sold them. He goes, I'll, 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 you can be little gods. I'm going to be the God of gods, but I'll make you gods too. That was enough for some of the angels to rebel. Here's a good example. Because in, if you kind of look at it, in Greek mythology, there was Zeus. He was the highest. But there are other gods in Greek mythology. Here's just to name some. Hades. Remember, he's actually one of the names of the angels. Poseidon. Apollo. Athena. Artemis, which we studied. So in Greek mythology, there is a god among gods. I want to suggest to you that Zeus is Satan. And that the other gods are the other angels who followed him. But he's given them a character. And they receive worship and sacrifices and fear from the people. Right? And in Rome, although they allowed for the worship of gods, the Roman emperor, Caesar, was the Lord over all. It's another picture of Satan at the top with fallen angels subject to him. Hence, why throughout the ancient world history to this date, there are many religions and many gods. You can even see many myths. Because I, I believe that it's just a kind of a pattern that even in this plurality of this, these gods, there's always going to be one that's on top. But there is, you know, there, is, there is room for other gods. But in God's economy, there's only one God. There's no other gods besides Him. We just read that in Isaiah 44, didn't we? Another conjecture. Paul, before his conversion, he too also thrown believers into prison to be sentenced and killed. So it can be said that before Paul's conversion, he was under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, and he was in effect a member of the synagogue of Satan. Did you get that? Before Paul was converted on the road to Damascus and was encountered by Christ, he was influenced by the prince of the power of the air. He said he was a Jew, but he really was not. He was part of the synagogue of Satan because he was after Christians to have them arrested so that they can be tortured and killed. And as far as when it says the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, 
can this statement also be prophetic? You know, because, you know, I, I struggle because as we're studying, we're like, okay, is this just the media context and it stops there? Or does it keep going? So if you were to say, well, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, we know that it was more immediate to the Smyrnians back then. But could this also be prophecy about the Antichrist who will rise to power and will throw some believers into prison to be tortured and killed? I can't rule that out. And the, so the takeaway of verse 10 is this. Jesus is warning these believers of immense persecution that is to come at the hands of evil rulers possessed by Satan himself. The apostles and believers experienced it before them, and they will experience it too. Thank you so much for joining us today at Truth Matters Church. We do hope you were blessed and even encouraged by today's message. And there's even more to learn about the persecution found in the region of Smyrna. And we'll look more carefully at that next week as we study the life and death of Polycarp, a pillar of the early Christian faith. If you've missed any part of our study in Revelation, you can find all of it at our website, truthmatterschurch.org, or by searching for us on Sermon Audio. And if you happen to be blessed by the teachings you're hearing, please consider supporting Truth Matters Church with a financial gift. You can give online at truthmatterschurch.org. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.